You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time. They can't be. You're listening to Cheese and Packers, a project powered by the Packers Podcast Network. I am your host, JJ Leahy. I got on the line with me today, one and only Sam Holman. Uh, you all know him and love him. He is unquestionably the smartest mind on Packers Twitter when it comes to defense. Uh, there is nobody else in the same stratosphere as Sam Holman. Um, he may not like me saying this, but there's a lot of people who will agree with me. A lot of very smart people who agree with me. Sam is uh, one of one. And I'm super happy to have him on the podcast today. Been wanting to get this done for a while. And what we're going to be doing today is um, actually, let me prelude this. There's a lot of fake things out there in the football world. Uh, chief among them, of course, the Minnesota Vikings. It's a completely phony, contrived franchise. I mean, they stole their dumb chant from a soccer team. Um, they. They claim a world championship that's not a real world championship. It's a conference championship, but they pretend it's a world championship. Uh, last year, they won 13 games, which, you know, hey, kudos to them. 13 wins, that's awesome. Of course, they were the, uh, I believe, the first team in NFL history to win 13 games with a negative point differential on the season. Um, even if if another team did squeak in uh, with a negative point differential with 13 wins, I do know for a fact that the Vikings were, had the worst point differential among any 13-win team in history. So, you know, when it comes to fake, there's no bigger kings out there than the Minnesota Vikings. But there is some fakeness in the world of the Packers as well. And it primarily lives on social media, and it is myths. I think there's a lot of myths about mm, the current Packers defense. And what we're going to do, I came up with a list of some things that I see on Twitter and on Facebook all the time when it comes to the wildly unpopular Joe Barry and his defense. Now, I... 
certainly have over the years, last couple of years, I have made my own criticisms of Joe Barry. I have my own criticisms of him. I don't think he's perfect. Um, and in fact, there is at least a question in my mind of whether he deserves his job. But I do think it's really interesting that the criticisms that are made of him on Twitter are ones that largely I don't share at all. And so I thought, hey, I'm going to bring the king of defense on Packers Twitter on here, and we're going to throw some statements that are made about the Packers defense and about Joe Barry at Sam Holman, and we're going to ask him to evaluate this and educate us on is this a myth or truth? So, Sam, welcome to the podcast. Really appreciate you making time for us. Yeah, glad to be on. Uh, it's been it's been a while since I've uh, hopped on the pod. I, I really appreciate all the praise. I mean, I probably don't deserve half of it, but I appreciate it nonetheless and looking forward to digging into some of these questions. Okay, so um, I'm not as structured as I'd like to be with this episode, but I think that that might be okay because maybe we, you know, we have some, some questions served up to help uh, shape the conversation, but it might take us to some new and interesting places, and I welcome that. First of all, one of the things that I want to throw at you, Sam, um, before we get into anything else, um, it's, it seems more and more over the last couple of years that I'm seeing players and coaches downplay the importance of coaching in the NFL and really talk about, look, you know, the, a lot of what you see really is just the players. And like, yes, the coaches really do serve a role, but you know, when you see like something really stupid happen and your instinct is to blame the coach, when the players and the coaches get in front of a mic, they are pretty quick to kind of dismiss a lot of that and downplay it and put it more on the players. That That's, that's the coaches and it's the players. Um, talk to me about just in general, like, Last year, for example, one of the big things with the Packers' defense was that the secondary play was just not what anybody was expecting. On the course of the whole year, yes, there were some good games. Yes, there were some terrible games. But by and large, it just was not what anybody was expecting. And at the end of the season, Jerry Gray leaves. Uh, we get uh, you know new young coach. Greg Williams is going to come in from the Arizona Cardinals. He's taking over the cornerback room. Um, you know, we still have uh, our, our safety coach from last year, who that was his first year. Obviously, safeties, that whole thing didn't go well. But how much blame should we be putting on the position coaches or the defensive coordinator versus how much should we just be looking at Jair Alexander, the safeties, um, Rasul Douglas, Eric Stokes when he was healthy, and just saying, listen, you got to play better and you guys have to communicate better. You have to be on the same plan, you know, same page as each other. How much of that is coaching? How much of that is the players themselves? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question to answer because I, I don't know if we from, you know, outside the organization can say for certain uh, what the real cause of it was. Like, we don't know if um, that those communication breakdowns you mentioned, like we don't know, maybe the secondary was, being expected to communicate with really esoteric and difficult language and just their, their teaching process of the coaches wasn't good. Maybe it was just the players weren't, you know, weren't paying attention in, in the, in the classroom and they were learning these, learning this stuff. 
Um, I do find it telling that uh, when Matt LaFleur was talking about hi- the hiring of Greg Williams, he specifically like mentioned uh, how Williams, like his, his teaching progression and kind of how good he was as a mm-hmm. teacher. And so that, I don't know, that seems to speak to me like, okay, there was something going on with the, how the coaches were teaching this stuff that was causing those breakdowns, but it, it's just really hard to know for certain, I think, without actually being in the building. I will say that the pessimistic side of me gets some like PTSD flashbacks about them talking about Mo Drayton and how, you know, his, his big thing was being a teacher, but yeah, totally unfair to make a comparison between Mo Drayton and Greg Williams until we actually see Greg get in and, and do his thing. We will evaluate him on his own merits. So for, for this first uh, myth that we're looking at here about that, the defensive back play last year was largely the fault of Joe Barry and or the position coaches. In your opinion, is this more myth, truth, or just impossible for us to know? Because we, we did have you on, I'll just give you a little bit of time to think. We did have you on a couple times last year to talk about some of the problems we were seeing on the defense. And yeah. one of the things that we talked about was, for example, the early Minnesota game where it seemed like Justin Jefferson had his way all day long. And the predominant narrative that you saw on Packers Twitter and Packers Facebook was Joe Barry is an idiot. And how in the world, you know, do you not have Jair Alexander on Justin Jefferson all day? And you came on the show and you said, listen, I I understand the criticisms here that it seems like, you know, why can't you have Jair just glued to Justin Jefferson all day? But it's also, you know, the, the the big problem there was that the guys on the field were not executing. That you could clearly see, hey, here's the assignment, and the guys were just not doing their freaking jobs. That, you know, they're supposed to pass guys off in zone coverage, and they're just not doing it. They're just like, yeah. oh, you're supposed to pass the guy off to me? Um, I'm just going to just go do whatever and not pick up the guy. So you were saying, hey – you know, maybe the plan of having Jair on JJ all day would have been great, but it kind of doesn't matter what the plan is if the players aren't following the plan because nothing's going to work if you don't do it. So watch a little bit extra time to answer. Is this a myth, a truth, or just impossible to know about whether we should be blaming the DB performance last year on the coaches? Yeah. Um, it's kind of, kind of sounds like a cop-out, but I would say like a mix of all three. It, it kind of, I would say at different times, all three manifested, right? I think that, like we talked about, those communication issues in that first game, um, there was definitely some of that where we don't know if that was specifically on the players, how they were taught, how they were prepared leading up to week one. Um, because we, we had seen, we saw like in Joe Barry's first year that there were similar miscommunications early in the year. And so that makes me wonder if, um, you know, there, there was something going on with it, that how the coverages were being taught. But then, like I said, there were also instances where the defensive backs, they weren't executing the coverages. They weren't playing them correctly. You know, Eric Stokes had some issues, um, early on that, I mean, they all did to some extent. Um, and then, as kind of the year went on, I think, I think if I had to choose one of the three, I would lean towards this being a truth that it what did fall more on Joe Barry and the coaching staff, just because okay. the way I've kind of, you know, I've, I probably think about the Packers defense too much that 
to be to be healthy, right? I, I think about it a fair amount, you know, even in the off season, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what what went wrong, what went right, why did that happen? And I think that the the main problem I have with the defense is that there's just not enough answers, right? They're trying to play like these these set coverages, but they're you know they're not getting pressure like we saw in the second half of the year at times without Rashawn Gary, and I think that's something we're going to get into later on. Um, yes, sir. But just, you know, when I look at defensive coordinators who have like the top defenses, they're, they're using different methods. They're not just, they're not in a static defense um, where they're calling the same handful of things over and over, right? They're, they're mixing up their looks. They're sending different, different simulated pressures from different looks. They're getting into the same coverages, but they're doing it from different disguises to kind of confuse the offense. It's, it's it's like the the illusion of complexity that Malfoy talked about before, where you're trying to get into you can get into the same things, you can run the same things, but just get into them different ways, disguise them different ways, and I just the those answers like the different ways of solving problems, I don't see that in the Packers scheme, and that I think falls on Joe Barry, and so that I think that if I had to choose one of the three, it would probably I would probably lean towards putting the the onus of that on the coaches. All right, that's an awesome answer to kick us off onto a an array of maybe some more specific questions. So we're going to stick with the secondary for a minute. Let's talk about this frustration. This is probably the number one thing that you will see people getting pissed off about on Packers Twitter when they talk about uh, defense. The Packers play too much soft zone. Right, You hear this all the time. And I, I can say with confidence, I don't believe that you know, even 80% of people who say that even know what that means. But do the Packers play too much soft zone is part A. And part B is, is playing soft zone a bad thing? Can you break down what this actually is? Is it a negative? Do the Packers do too much of it? Yeah, I mean, it kind of ties, I mean, it ties into that, that answer, you know, but trying to answer the questions that the offense is presenting. I think that if I think that zone is zone is not an inherently bad or an inherently soft type of defense. I think that if it's executed well, if it's taught well, um, then it could be a really, really potent type of defense, right? We saw the 2020 Rams, like they basically played the same stuff that the Packers are playing, but just, just the way that they approached it, the, the, the situation specific play calls that they made, the way their players executed, that made the defense really effective. So I think that there's not like a a set amount of zone coverage that like if you if you get above this amount if you call the, this many zone plays that's that's too much zone coverage. I think that it all depends on how you're using your zone coverage to solve problems. Like for example, a lot of what the Packers play, they play quarters coverage, which quarters, you know, it's it, it is a lot of that where, where the outside corners, especially the guys you can see on the TV, they're playing off. Um, and that's because they have vertical responsibilities, right? Because that is, is a defense where the outside corners, they have their outside one, one quarter field zones. They're expected to match those outside receivers so that the safeties can do a bunch of different stuff in the middle of the field, right? They can play the run. They can uh, nail down on, dig routes, curl routes, that kind of thing, whatever the the offense is presenting. And so it's, I think that what it's easy to, or it's easy to mistake or not realize is that when you see those guys playing off, that's usually because the defense is trying to do something specific to solve the problems that the offense is presenting. And well, I, I agree that the Packers defense does not do that to the, 
the the standard that it should. I don't think that the off coverage, the zone coverage is the reason behind that. Now, I will say in like lower levels of football, like high school football, I have heard, you know, if you play like, like that much off coverage, you can get that, that, you know, repeated play calls from offensive coordinators where, you know, they're just running hitches or out routes or whatever. And they're just, you know, running you down the field, you know, five yard gains at a time. I like, I've watched a fair amount of games. I've never seen that happen in the NFL where they just repeat those same play calls over and over. I think I do that in Madden. I do that in Madden. It's very effective at times. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think that what, with the NFL, my, my theory is you've got these, these insane athletes on on the outside. And if you, if you do that, if you repeat that play call a bunch of times without, you know, disguising it or getting into different looks to, to run it, then, you know, you, one, the, the defensive coordinator, you know, if he calls cover two, that looks like that cover four package and Jair Alexander's playing flat footed on, on that, on that hitch route, you're going to, you're going to be in trouble. And so I think that those, those athletes, the smaller space on the NFL field, it kind of prohibits that, that were that from happening. Um, yeah. I don't think that I, I personally don't think that Packers play too much soft zone just because the way I say it is zone is just a way to solve problems dif- differently. And if used effectively, you know, that, that can be a, a way to have a good defense. So here's what a, a lot of, a big part of Packers Twitter will tell you in all their infinite wisdom is that if you have crappy DBs, then you need to play a lot of soft zone to account for that. And if you have uh, really good corners uh, elite corners, then what you should be doing is playing press man and trying to jam these guys off the line of scrimmage. And Joe Barry is an idiot for not doing that because he's got Jair Alexander. What's your answer to that? I would say that in the NFL today, where there's a ton of motion, there's a ton of condensed sets, I don't think that you can play the man coverage that, freak, that frequently or, or – you you have to play it under certain conditions. I think that what those people they they may not think about is one. You know you can there's there are pretty easy ways to beat man coverage. Just like run a rub route, run mesh, and you're gonna unless your all your corners are Hall of Fame level players, they're gonna you're gonna get guys open if you run that type type of stuff. And the defense is just predictably calling man coverage over and over again, right? Mm-hmm. that's just calling man coverage is not not going to be an effective way to run a defense because you're being predictable. It, you're not getting to answers that are diverse enough to counteract what the offense is trying to do. And then another thing is run defense, right? The, if you're playing man coverage a bunch, then it, in my opinion, becomes really easy for offenses to distort your, how your run fit is structured. So like, you know, if your safety is man-to-man on a tight end on, on the strong side of the formation and that tight end motions back as the ball is snapped, and you're kind of getting like a split zone look. Yeah, safety, right, that he's supposed to be the force player. He's supposed to handle the, the outside lane, and suddenly he's getting displaced, and your, your linebacker is having – your Mike linebacker is having to cover that outside lane, try to make it make your way out there. And it's just – it's too easy, in my opinion, for offenses to um, run that stuff for you to run man coverage really frequently, unless you have a really good defensive line that can make up for how that second level is, you know, being distorted, being uh, manipulated by the offensive coordinator. 
All right, so do the Packers play too much cowardly soft zone, and it hurts them a lot? Can we can we declare this myth busted? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that they're, they're definitely problems, and I think that playing too much of one thing is one of them, but it's not because that thing is soft zone. It's because they don't, they don't have enough solutions to what the offense is doing. They don't diversify their calls enough. They don't – yeah, they, they just don't do enough – on defense, but I don't think it's because it's it's just soft zone. It's because the their calls get just get too. Um, I'm not sure what what the word would be. Okay, it's not coming to mind right now, but just too too predictable. There we go. Too predictable. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sticking with the secondary again, which I think is fair with with how much the secondary struggled for a lot of last year and how tense the expectations are for the secondary this year. Is uh, how do I phrase this to sound like a myth? Um, I guess I don't know. I'm just going to ask the question the way I wrote it down. Is playing eight yards off on third and short actually bad? I think it, it can. It can be. Um, and I think there are some very specific examples that probably stick out to people. Right, uh, the last third down against the Lions in that last game of the season, um, where I, the Lions, I think we're in a bunch formation and one of the outside corners was playing off and the Lions ran like an out route and got the first down and basically won the game. I think that, um, like I said, in, in the modern NFL where you're getting a bunch of motion, where you're getting a bunch of condensed formation, bunch formation, stacks and that sort of thing, you have to play. One of the key things to playing those on defense is to set your like your defenders at different levels so you it's harder for the offense to run pick routes and stuff and stuff like that um so i think that that's that's a reason that you do see a lot of outside corners playing off like especially especially those you know the sean mcveigh kyle shanahan the really condensed sense where everyone's right in the middle of the field and you'll usually see the corners playing off um just because that's how it usually has to happen for the coverages to you know, stay sound and not not get messed up by those pick routes, those rub routes, motion, that sort of thing. I think pretty much everybody has a, a grasp of the idea that you would do this for at least one reason, and that is, you know, the sort of bend but don't break um, idea behind defense that, hey, we are willing to give up the first down here to avoid letting you take a big chunk out of us. Are there other reasons, though, why you might play a little bit of off coverage in, you know, a, a third and short situation, third or fourth and short situation? I think that – I think it, for, like, third and short, fourth and short, generally you would see that off coverage if you're um, – one, if you're getting like condensed sets, like we talked about, and then two, if you're trying to, if you're expecting the offense to do a certain thing that you want to play a certain coverage to counteract. So, like I mentioned, quarters, right, where the corners are often playing, you know, farther off the ball because they have vertical responsibility. They don't have safety help over the top because the safeties are playing aggressive towards the middle of the field. So, like if you're getting a team that run likes to run like you know, Y cross or something like that, where the, the uh, tight end, he's 
you know, running an over route across the field and you want to use your safety to rob that, that route because the offense lo- loves to throw that route, then you might be, you know, the, the corners playing off, you're, you're sacrificing a little bit of aggressiveness in, in those situations to play more aggressive in other areas of the field. And another example, right, in cover three, you're dropping a safety down into the box, you're playing more aggressive against the run. Again, you'll often see corners play off in those coverage because they have they have less vertical help uh, from this from the safeties, and so I think the way that's the way I view it. In that, um, the it, I, I like to look at wh- why why they're that they're playing with less aggression uh, on in those situations. Like, where are they being trying to be more aggressive? But because they're sacrificing aggression in this one area. Um, now, I do think that. You know, having said all that, I, I think there are good reasons that they play off at times. I do think that they could benefit from playing more press looks, if not straight press man coverage. Just because, like going back to those that what I mentioned, that I think that defenses in the modern NFL they have to have a bunch of different answers to what offenses are doing. So they have to change up their looks sometimes, not become predictable like like I think the Packers defense has in the past. So you you just specified a press look that is maybe is not necessarily the same thing as as a true press man coverage. Can you elaborate on what that is? Yeah, so that'll be something more in like uh, cover two where you'll see where the corners will like jam the wide receiver and then, you know, control the control the flat area. Um, because they, cause they have safety health. They don't have to worry about being beat deep in, in those situations. Um, and then another thing is that, uh, sometimes corners, you know, we went over those coverages where they will often play off coverage. That's not always the case, right? Some corners, depending on their preference and their ability level, they'll, pr- they'll get up on the line and press in those situations. In fact, Eric Stokes in his rookie year, well, I think one of the reasons he had a lot of success is, what the staff was allowing him to do in, in those situations, specifically in like against shotgun formations and those formations mm-hmm. where you're more, more likely to get quick routes, they were letting him go up the line and kind of not not play off. Right, he could kind of he could use like press man footwork. He didn't usually jam the receiver um, physically, but he would use kind of man footwork and just play play his quarter zone from from that look. Um, I think that that definitely has some advantages, and I'm kind of that's one of the reasons I'm. I, I was surprised by the struggles that Eric Stokes had this year is they basically stopped using him like that. They didn't let him do that anymore, or he decided not to do that anymore. I'm not sure which it was, but um, I think there are definitely, the, those are some of the situations that kind of come to mind in giving those press man looks. Well, when Stokes is able to run again, it'll be interesting to see if we see any changes when he yeah. uh, is able to get back on the field. We're going to take a quick break and uh, hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back in one minute. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right. A company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view 
on all possible cards and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, Sam, uh, here's one for you. And you know, just from talking to me that I know the answer, but let's, uh, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate. <clears throat> I, I am the voice of Twitter user X. All right. Press Joe Barry is such an idiot. He's putting Preston Smith lining him up as a cornerback. Come on. Who the heck does that? Why is your edge rusher dropping into coverage all the time? Why would you put Preston Smith on Justin Jefferson or on a tight end? So I always I always kind of laugh at that because um, the Packers have been playing the 3-4 defense for like two decades. And this is like the first time people have thought to thought to complain about this. <laughs> um, I And I mean, I can understand it, right? Preston Smith, the Packers really don't have coverage linebackers in the same way that they may have had like with Clay Matthews and some of those guys who can move in space well they they have prioritized bigger guys over the last couple of years and so you know I can I can understand that right you don't want those guys necessarily dropping in space and covering receivers I think I think a couple things one if you actually look at the numbers uh and how often the the Packers were act at um asking we'll use Preston Smith as an example to drop into coverage I was looking at the, I think, PFF stats on that, and he's actually dropped into coverage. He dropped into coverage less in his two in his two years under Joe Barry combined. He's dropped into coverage less than he had he did under his last year under Mike Pettin. So that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it definitely doesn't happen as often, I think, as people assume it does. Um, I mean, there, there. I think there have been some high profile examples where it has happened. Right, that that Vikings game. Um, and I think notably though, people love putting that screenshot up of him line up against, uh, against Justin Jefferson. Interesting that Justin Jefferson didn't catch a touchdown on, the, on that play though. Isn't that strange? It's almost yeah. like the defense was doing something that prevented the offense from scoring on that play, despite the fact that Justin Jefferson was 
you know, mostly uncovered. Yeah. And it's never been a situation, at least now that I can remember, where the Preston or a linebacker has been asked to cover a wide receiver one-on-one. That pretty much all the coverages where those outside linebackers are asked to drop is ones where they have safety help or outside help, right? Normally that happens in, um, in two high coverages, right? The quarters cover two, cover six, which is, you know, one half of the field's quarters, one half is cover two. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those situations where they, they really aren't asking the, that, that linebacker to carry, carry anything vertically. You know, generally he has, either vertical help or outside help other help from other other zone defenders um and i I think that you know i'm gonna i'm gonna say this you know kind of with what we've been talking about right i honestly think they should drop their their linebackers into coverage more because what they really got into the last couple games of the year is they were super predictable because they were always rushing whenever they got into three four or penny which is like the you know five-man look in nickel they would rush all five because they didn't want to drop them. And that made them super predictable. In the Titans game, one of the touchdowns that I think a tight end caught, um, they, they they gave that look, right? They were in Penny. They sent all five, and Ryan Daniel knew exactly what the coverage was going to be and where to throw the ball. And, you know, caught the, the receiver caught it for a touchdown. And I think that um, that, that just that – Again, that predictability, I think, is what really caused the Packers' downfall. It It is like the, the off-coverage stuff, the dro- dropping outside linebackers into coverage, I don't think that would like make my top list of top four or five things that I, I think is has gone wrong with the Packers' defense, right? You know, those those are things, I mean, you, you want to try to avoid, but I think that there's always going to be uh, disadvantages to certain coverages, and it all depends on what the offense is running, what you're trying to stop, and what you're willing to sacrifice to stop that. All right. The Packers like to play Preston Smith as a cornerback, and this is hurting their defense. Myth or truth? I would say myth. I mean, they, they do play him a, uh, out in coverage sometimes, but I I think he's like – I think Justin Jefferson caught like a five-yard out at one point. That's like the only time I can remember there being a – a significant distance. Truly backbreaking. Yeah, I can't I believe that they would <laughs> they would seed five whole yards to Justin Jefferson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you mentioned toward the end of the year that they were uh, always rushing five in, in some of those situations. It was just so predictable. This leads to a conversation, and this this one's not so much necessarily you know myth busting, but it's it's a very important topic for the 2023 Packers defense. And that is the uh, overall edge rushers that we're going to have this year. Do you, do you think it is a fair assessment to make that the Packers did not trust the edge defenders that they had enough at the end of the year that they just didn't feel that they had the horses they needed to get the job done. And that in the off season, there was a big concerted effort to load up, on D-line overall, but especially to kind of help restock that edge room. Is all of what I just said fair, or do you want to poke some holes in it? I think that's fair. I mean, towards like the, the middle of the season, right after the mo- losing Rashawn Gary, what really, they really stuck out is they were you know sending a lot of five-man looks or, or pressure looks and trying to get pressure that way. Now, after the bye, they did, they kind of stopped that. 
where they were playing more two high coverages and that, that sort of thing. And they saw some more success, but I think that that was less because they, they weren't really I, getting like that. That wasn't a sign that they thought the problem was solved. I was just like, okay, with these, this blitzing, all this blitzing is not working where we're, we suck. So we need to change something up. And, you know, they had some success with kind of using those two high coverages in different ways. You know, they would, they would tweak the technique of a specific uh, defender to kind of confuse offenses. They would, you know, get into some different looks, disguise it a bit more. And I think that that was able to generate a little bit more, you know, give, give the rushers some more time to get home. And another thing they did was they, they disguised their pressures a little bit more in, in the Vikings game, especially. Um, second Vikings game? Uh, the second one. So the, um, well, one thing that kind of stuck out to me a couple times was they would send Quay Walker on a blitz but they would maintain, they would basically play uh, quarters uh, on top of that. And, you know, ask some defensive, I, I was curious about that because I'd never seen them do that before. Ask some defensive coaches about it. And they were basically explained that, you know, that was kind of a formation specific pressure where, you know, if it was two receivers to either side, they would, you know, play quarters. If it was three receivers to one side, they would switch into kind of their more traditional blitz coverage, which is a, a type of cover three, just with one one less zone defender who's obviously going on, going on the pressure. So, you know, changing those looks and kind of just tweaking the the way they were defending offenses each week, that, that was what really kind of helped them succeed towards the second half of the, or not really even second half, like the, the last quarter or so of the year. But I think that what we saw this, you know, in the draft was they really, really want to get players who can affect the quarterback, right? Um, right. Lucas Van Ness, Colby Wooden, Carl Brooks. I mean, Wooden and Brooks, like they're they're like those pass rushing three techniques. I think ideally that's what the Packers want. And so that, and that you I, were not going to find somebody in the draft who affected the quarterback more than Carl Brooks did statistically. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so I, th- I think that that was that they definitely saw that as a problem that needed to be fixed. They just couldn't quite figure it out, figure out how to fix it in the in season. So they kind of tried to do it through the draft. Talk to me about um, ex- you know your expectations for the defense this year, because obviously we went into last season with just sky high expectations that this should be like no worse than the third best defense in the league is what we were saying preseason last year, just based on the absurd talent that we had on the roster. And obviously there were some injuries losing probably the very best player that you have on the entire defense and Rashawn Gary for you know the, the majority of the season obviously hurt things, but you know, talk about, uh, sort of where you know your expectations were for last season and kind of where you think things went wrong and your optimism that things could get back on track this year. So where are you at for 2023 Packers defense? It's kind of hard because I, I think I was, you know, one of the people, I, I'm sure there were a lot who were hyping up the Packers defense before last season. And obviously, you know, we, we were all wrong. Um, so I'm not really sure what to think. I think there's still a lot of talent. I think that there are paths to getting some of the issues with the defense fixed. Like I, I find it really, I find it really interesting, you know, that Matt LaFleur is, he, he apparently has, you know, been spending more time, you know, in, in those defensive meeting rooms. You mentioned that, I think at the owner's meeting in, in an interview, um, I'm really interested to see how that plays out. I could see a world where, you know, these young players, they, uh, they are able to affect the quarterback, able to improve the Packers pass rush. 
Greg Williams comes in and he's able to get the secondary fixed up a bit, right? Get some of that miscommunication fixed and get, get all that squared away and have the secondary playing better. And then the influence of that Matt LaFleur kind of continues what we saw at the end of that last year, where they're using like those two high coverages that in the tools in those to change up the, the looks uh, based on the opponent and kind of adapt their defense week to week. And I could see, you know, if a lot, all that stuff goes right and, you know, you stay reasonably healthy, all, all that, all that stuff there. I think there is a path to this defense being pretty good. I don't want to put a number on it. I'm kind of gun shy after, after last year, but um, I think there is definitely a way that it could get better. Um, but I think there's also, you know, I think Joe Barry, he, in my opinion, is not a, a great coach. Like I've you know, been kind of talking about, I don't think that he has enough schematic answers, enough schematic flexibility to, to really succeed on, on a week to week basis. You know, there might be sections of the season where he does better just because of the opponent and, you know, the, the defense finds some success with turnovers and that sort of thing. But I think that left to his own devices, I don't think that he would be able to really maximize this defense. Um, but again, okay. there, there are those other factors that, you know, basically I'm saying if Matt LaFleur, you know, puts, puts Joe Barry in a box a little bit and says, okay, we're going to do this, not what you want to do. We're going to do what I want to do a little bit. And I, I'm assuming that that's what Malifor wants, that he wants to do what they were doing, that those two eye coverages and that sort of thing. So that's that's obviously an assumption, but I, I think that the defense could succeed, but it would probably have to happen in spite of Joe Barry. Mm. Oh, very encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, it sounds like if I were to put uh, to you uh, as a myth to be busted, uh, that Joe Barry uh, should have been let go after year two. Sounds like you would declare that not a myth. Yeah, that, that would be correct. I, I think that they there were some better, definitely some better options available. All right, let's talk about um, a couple player-specific myths, uh, In at least in terms of what he did year one. Quay Walker was a bust. Myth or truth? I would say that's a myth because even if you look at, like, I think after the season, SIS put out, like, a number that, like, it, something like value generated or something like that. I can't remember what it was specifically, but Quay Walker was one of the top, you know, rookie defenders in that. And I think that even for, for all the lumps he took, you know, all the mistakes he made, he was still able to use his athleticism and kind of his developing, you know, ability to decipher what the offense was doing, I think that he was able to affect the game positively in a lot of situations. Um, at linebacker, he did. Play, oh, go ahead. I just was going to say he did lead the team in tackles, and he uh, only ranked, ranked 12th overall in the team in terms of missed tackle percentage. Um, so, you know, that's 12th in a good way. Like, you don't want to be right. first in missed tackle percentage. So, uh, certainly you could feel his presence at times throughout the year. And he was, if nothing else, at the very least, a, a consistent tackler. And and I thought uh, pretty decent in coverage, pretty decent pass rush. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. I'm really excited about his coverage upside, to be honest. Like towards the, la- the last part after the bye of last year, like there were times where he was almost baiting quarterbacks into throwing picks. Um, and some some of that stuff got me really excited, even just watching it back after the season. So I, I think that. Um, I think, you know, he was very, very up and down year for him, but towards the end, he really started to put it together uh, mentally. 
All right, here's another myth for you. Kenny Clark, ha- uh, setting aside that the, the first several weeks of the 2022 season, he was playing at a, a very, very high level, um, just really tearing it up, seemed to kind of cool off for a lot of the rest of the year. So setting aside that, that he has had little spurts and flashes here, which have been very good for brief periods of time. Here's the myth. Kenny Clark's last good season was 2018. Myth or truth? Um, well, to kind of caveat that, to be fair, I did not start watching film until like 2021. And so um, I can't judge super well some of those other seasons. I think that what I saw from him in 2021 was, you know, mostly good. You know, he, he plays a position where he, um, or he, he has in the past, they kind of moved him. They've been moving around a little bit more with Joe Barry, kind of using him at three technique more where he, they've been, he's been playing at positions where he's kind of asked to do some dirty work and take up blocks and, you know, yada, 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 kind of all, all that jazz. Um, I, I think that, that has kind of impacted, you know, his ability to impact the game through pass rush and that sort of thing. You know, whatever, most games when I watch him, he's impacting the game positively in, in some sort of way. I think that this past year, he sounds like he lost a little bit of weight, and I think that affected his mm-hmm. ability to defend the run in some situations, hold up against double teams. Um, but uh, in most games, I, I think I would say he was a positive player. I don't know if he's ever going to be like a superstar defensive tackle who's getting 10 sacks a year, but I think that he is good for for what the Packers ask him to do. So so if I had, had to put it to you this way, do you think the Packers are getting out of Kenny Clark what they pay him for? What's his contract again? Um, you know, actually, I'm not sure where he ranks. I can, I can pull this up. Um, sure. I'm not sure where he ranks in the league, but – um, they did make him the highest paid uh, defensive tackle a couple of years ago. And, you know, certainly the expectation was that he was going to be, you know, that, that foundational block on the Packers D line. Okay. So obviously Aaron Donald is the highest paid defensive lineman. Kenny Clark would be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 11th highest paid defensive, uh, defensive lineman in the NFL. So you got a couple guys, um, who I you know you wouldn't classify them as true you know nose tackles ahead of him, uh, kind of some more edgy guys, but still eleventh overall in the league. Yeah, I mean that that seems to be a fair bracket or area for him to be in. Um, like I said, he he doesn't always put up like the numbers um, and the flashy plays, but I he's been when I've watched him, he's been pretty consistently able to affect the game in a positive way. He he's it's also more to remember he's like the, been the only quality defensive tackle the Packers have had in years, and so that there and there's been a lot of stuff he's been asked to do um, to kind of counteract that weakness. I'm going to be really interested to see how he does this season uh, with Devontae Wyatt. Devontae Wyatt, yeah. And some of those other guys they've added. Um, so I, I would say, I you know, to be fair, I do like Kenny Clark quite a bit personally. Like that's, you know, he's one of my favorite, favorite players. So, you know, might have a bit of bias there. But I, I do think he's a good player. I think he's fairly consistently a good player. Um, just though there are certain – Stretches where he goes on a goes on a tear and really becomes a, a 
you know, a fiery, like, affect the game every down pass rusher. That's just not, not really his game. It's consistently, um, but he does provide good play for the Packers uh, consistently. It's just not quite, it's not always to his peak ability. All right. So overall, you would say this is a myth that, uh, that, that Kenny Clark has, you know, not really had a, had a fantastic year since 2018. You would say, no, you, you don't really think that statement holds up. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of fantastic. I think he's been good for the Packers since then. Um, but it, that's it, fantastic might be putting it strongly. I would say myth is probably half busted. Okay. All right. All right. So we have a, a couple of little myths I want to throw out here about safeties. And this is going to bring us to our final topic, which is we're going to have a conversation about um, safety responsibilities in, in Joe Barry's scheme and, and sort of see if we can find an explanation for why the safety play last year was so underwhelming for everybody. Um, we're going to start off with, I guess I'm, I'm just going to throw out three safety names and we're going to put out there a myth about each one of them and you give me a, a myth or truth um, or inconclusive on all three of these. First of all, Darnell Savage is a bust, a terrible player. I think that at this point it's probably truth, but my heart wants to believe that it's not. Um, I still, I'm still holding out hope. Just the the flashes he showed a couple times in 2021, there were a stretch of games where he was he was like using that that quarters technique that we talked about to you know rob middle of the field routes. He was you know using that to make plays to make an impact. There was that game against the Vikings where he almost had like three or four picks. I mean, yep. keyword is almost. He had three um, dropped interceptions in that game. Yep. Yeah. Um, but I, I think at this point it'd probably be, you know, we probably need to give up hope of that happening for, you know, that having a good chance of happening. I think it's still within the realm of possibility, but it's probably there's probably a pretty small chance that he puts it together. Adrian Amos last year was washed. This is a hard one because I think I tweeted that exact tweet at one point. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say he was washed in some areas. I, I think that his speed, he, he wasn't as fast as he's been in, in last in past years. I think he was still, you know, fairly good run defender, fairly good tackler. Um, I don't know what the numbers say about that. So don't fact check me. But um, I, I think that, yeah, his athleticism, that was what concerned me, which, you know, that's that's kind of kind of washed in the in the classical sense if you will um so yeah i i would say i would say truth i'll go with go with my tweet all right adrian amos last year's second overall in the team in tackles with 76 that's 11 behind quay walker who was of course number one and adrian amos only had 7.8 percent missed tackles so uh, okay. pretty good especially on this defense so your observations about his tackling Pretty, pretty good. Really, it was the coverage that was just kind of a disaster for him yeah. last year. So uh, that that speed could be the issue. All right, last one. This one, uh, this this one, you better be careful because you might make some people mad. <laughs> Depending on how you answer this. Mm-hmm. All right, Rudy Ford was elite last year, but he just wasn't given enough opportunities. Yeah, elite elite is too strong for me. Um, I and I like Rudy Ford uh, quite a bit. Um, I mean, he played he started basically half the season, if I remember right. 
Um, I think that he's a definitely a capable run defender. I uh, like how physical he is in the box. Um, but there were definitely a number of instances last year where he messed up coverage assignments and, and let, let them go for you know fairly big plays. Um, I think that that was counteracted a bit by the stuff he was able to do as a deep safety, you know, picking off balls, uh, Dak Prescott, obviously. And then uh, there was another one, I think in the second Vikings game and maybe a couple others, he, you know, he seemed to find ways to be around the ball to affect the game in terms of turnovers. And so I think that on the whole, he, he was a, you know, a fairly good player for the Packers. I would definitely not him, not put him in the elite category. So talk to me about the overall uh, responsibilities that are asked of the safeties over these last two seasons here. Um, You know, since Joe Barry got here, because we kind of prior to last year, we really thought that safeties was a real strength for the Packers. And I think that 2021, by the end of the season, you kind of felt like maybe that was inconclusive. That, you know, in, in 2020 and 2019, you really felt like, okay, we have probably two of the best safeties in the NFL on the same team. This is a big strength for us. The end of 2021, you kind of felt it was inconclusive. At the end of 22, you're like, do we have any safeties on the roster who can play yeah. football? And I don't think that it's a complete coincidence that we had a new defensive coordinator come in, um, you know, had a, a turnover at the safety coach um, job. But I'm assuming that that there's some relatively significant changes in what is being asked of these safeties over these last two years. Is that true? I would say it is. there is quite a bit of truth to that. I think that Mike Pettin's defense was more focused around single hive coverages, right, what they would use where Darnell Savage found, you know, that, that stretch of games where he picked off like five or six balls. Um, he was being used a lot as like a robber in, in cover one, right, where most people are in man coverage. You've got a deep post safety and then an underneath zone, which in this case was being filled by the other safety dropping down into kind of the the low middle of the field type area. Um, Packers don't play that as much under Joe Barry. Um, They did play for a amount of cover one on third downs in 2021, but they they kind of went away from that in 2022. Um, What they do a lot of is uh, on base downs, they'll play generally, it'll be either cover two, cover four, or some, you know, mix, mix of those, right? Cover six, which we talked about a little bit. Or they'll play cover three, which is right a post safety, and then the other safety is either in the box or over the slot. Um, but he's dropped down, kind of near closer to the line of scrimmage. Um, I think that the it's kind of it's kind of strange to me still that Darnell Savage didn't find some of that same success because there still are opportunities within some of those coverages to kind of do that robber type stuff. Like okay. We talked about quarters, you know, mentioned a couple of times where you're able to play some of those intermediate routes kind of top down like you would in, in that robber coverage a little bit. Um, but, you know, he he play, he was playing, you know, cover cover two and some of those coverages where he's being asked asked to, to take deep uh, vertical routes, uh, eliminate those. Um, and then cover three, he was more 
he didn't play as the bo- in the box as much. The the Packers kind of use their safeties interchangeably under Joe Barry, but if they're you know they kind of lean towards putting Amos in the box a bit more. Um, so Savage ended up you know as the deep one third uh, a bit. And like you kind of mentioned in 2021, the results were kind of up and down, right? There were instances where the the safeties, you know, were were good or adequate. There were others where they, you know, sucked. But in 2022, I think that just the, you know, the coverages that they were playing, they, um, Savage wasn't able to impact the game like he was in uh, 2020, that last stretch of games. Um, part of that was, I think, the coverages that were being played, right? Those those ones where they couldn't play the the robber type looks as much, right? Cover two and, and cover three. Um, but obviously, there was also the the, the added uh, problems of miscommunication and just general execution. Um, I think that. Yeah, I think that the the main stuff that they'll play, they'll play cover three. Usually, they'll try to disguise it. Uh, with Joe Barry, right, have well, where they'll have the safeties line up as if they're going to play too high, and then one drops into the box, and then they will actually play. They will play too high, where it's you know one of the safeties playing a half field zone, quarter field zone, a mix of the two, uh, that sort of thing. Last year, the uh, Packers had nearly identical tackling attempts compared to 2021 it was within five tackling attempts uh, 837 in 2022 832 in 2021 and there were about two more missed tackles per game in 2022 than there were in 2021 and you do notice that uh, a lot of the missed tackles last year were coming from uh, some of the edge rushers that we had available. Uh, uh, Preston Smith had a pretty pretty high number of missed tackles. You know, you definitely feel the absence of Rashawn Gary, but also the safeties rank really highly in in the missed tackles. Um, Do you think that, I mean, obviously it's a very fair statement to make overall that a good tackling defense is a good defense. But do you think that, this was um, a a big contributor, a noticeable contributor last year um, in terms of missed tackles coming from the safeties that that really made the the overall defense feel kind of soft and spongy. Yeah, I think that um, the you know, the defensive tackling from the safeties didn't really stick out to me a whole lot, to be honest. It were, but it was just it might have just kind of been a part of the generally bad tackling overall as a team. Um, yeah. Just maybe, you know, kind of cover that up a little bit. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, mistackling, it's it's like the most frustrating thing to watch on film, and I'm sure it's even more frustrating as a coach where, you know, you're – I think the whole thing with the – the defense is you're trying to force mistakes. And if you let an offense get down the field quicker because you're missing tackles, there's less chance that they're going to make mistakes and more chance that they're going to be able to score, whether it's by a long play or, you know, just driving down the field. Um, That's actually one of the, just the general tackling issues overall is one of the reasons I'm pretty high on Jonathan Owens being signed by the pack because he, 
you know, he showed both by the numbers and on film, he was a really, really good tackler in Houston with the Texans. Um, just you know, popped out on film, just even in difficult situations, right, where he's he's being forced to tackle Jonathan Taylor one on one in the open field, and he has to take a knee to the head to do it. He's you know he's <laughs> getting them on the ground, which they you know didn't didn't happen enough in the Packers defense. So I that's that's one of the reasons I hope that he he's able to win one of those starting spots. Yeah, if if the overall tackling attempts um, on the entire season between 21 and 22 is eerily similar, the overall yards allowed to opposing offenses is also eerily similar. However, there is about a 550-yard difference between rushing and passing yards allowed. In 2021, the Packers allowed... 4,152 yards through the air and only 1,855 yards on the ground. And there's about a 550 yard shift the following year. So the pass defense actually was much better and the rush defense was much worse on a yardage basis. Now it's tempting to point to the uh, Philadelphia Eagles game and say, well, there's all the 550 rushing yards. (laughs) Okay, but but in 2022, the Packers gave up just 3,539 yards through the air, 600 yards fewer uh, through the air than the previous year. But they coughed up 2,372 yards on the ground, which is 550 yards more than the previous year. I mean, again, is this where is this coming from? Is it just the absence of Rashawn Gary? Is it just you know? Uh, Devondre Campbell missing time and, and, you know, maybe you got uh, maybe a, a spongier defensive line. Like, is this the whole defense doing a, a poor job of tackling? You know, like you said, uh, about two more missed tackles per game on the season. Is this all it is, or is there something more specific we can point to? I think that one of the things that stuck out to me just watching the defense as a whole is that they really went away from using those especially during the second half of the year, the the five-man penny fronts, right, where they're getting into the nickel, but instead of putting in two linebackers, they've got one linebacker and the nickel defender. They're keeping all five defensive linemen on the field. I think that that look in a lot of situations was where they had some success in defending the run in 2021. And obviously they didn't have a good rushing defense that year either. But I think that where they, you know, had had some of that, those glimmers of success came when they were able to play you know, three, four, or their penny front, where they were able to take up blockers and let their run, linebackers run free. Um, which you know that they could also like that they're you know decreasing the their usage of that formation, that package could also have contributed to you know some of the missed tackles. You know, if you if you're having a runner just get free faster and you're not able to get a good as get as good of an angle that can lead to more missed tackles, that sort of thing. So I, I think that was one of the biggest things that stuck out to me. Um, but just overall defensive line talent, you know, tackling ineffectiveness and a bunch of other stuff also contributed. All right, Sam, really appreciate your time on here. Thank you for clearing up a lot of these uh, sort of just lingering things that, have been bugging me and I'm sure a bunch of other people out there. It's nice to have just to sit down with somebody who really knows what he's talking about and say, Hey, I hear a lot of people say a lot of these things. 
how many of these are just kind of bogus and how much of these should I actually be paying attention to? I think we did a good job of sifting through some of these. So uh, super appreciate your time. Where can people find you and, uh, and read your latest work? Yeah. So um, appreciate you having me on. Hopefully I am right about some of these things. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I usually, I spend a lot of time on uh, Twitter, uh, probably too much, uh, but that's where you can usually find my writing. I, I write for Wisconsin sports heroics, um, write about the Packers, a lot about the defense, a lot about the defensive line specifically um, posted on there, especially during the season. I also li- like to post a lot of video clips, you know, from the, the coaches film and kind of, break those down a little bit for people. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where I hang out a fair amount. Um, so that's at Sam underscore D Holman on Twitter. Do make sure that you give him a follow and read his work over on Wisconsin sports All right, Sam, really appreciate your time. Look forward to having you again on real soon. As soon as your schedule allows it. Yeah, for sure. All right. Have a good one. Thank you.